What we do have is a democratically elected salary panel. So everybody elects the salary panel. And then we have a pool. What increase there should be in this year's salaries? And at every debate, it discusses it, looks at last year's profit, looks at the potential profit for next year, and work out what that pool should be. Then they, each of them puts in their proposal for how much they should earn, and the salary panel debates that. Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimising business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I am speaking with and learning from Henry Stewart. Henry's a good friend, old friend. Met him many years ago when both of our organizations were competing in the Management Today Unisys Service Excellence Awards and then stumbled across Henry in the Sunday Times Best Companies Awards program and the Great Places to Work program. And Henry looks at the world through a different lens to me. So often I find conversations with Henry challenging and stimulating. And today we're going to chat about some of the things that he's done recently. He was one of, Happy was one of the organizations that took part in the British pilot looking at four-day week. I think 70 companies took part in this. And he, like all of the other companies who took part, have decided to carry on with a four-day week. And this came about when they did some, they did a staff survey asking staff for feedback on where they were in terms of staff welfare. And Happy said, look, this company has been at the forefront of welfare and engagement for many years, but maybe we're slipping behind. And so they decided to take part in the pilot and run the four-day week. And they, last year, they grew revenue 40% year over year. They're planning to grow revenue 10% this year. And they have seen productivity go up as a result of moving to a four-day week. So we talk about the four-day week, talk about that. Also, Henry wrote a post about having the staff set his salary as the CEO, which then went viral on LinkedIn. And he got a bit of hate mail from people saying he was completely mental and this would never work. And staff or employees couldn't possibly set the CEO salary because they had no idea what the CEO did. So we talk about his motivation behind that and how they run salary transparency at Happy. And that's certainly one of the goals when I'm working with clients is how do we get, how do we remove, how do we make it so salaries are not opaque? Now, whether people get to total transparency or not, I don't have a very strong opinion on. I like it to get it so that people know clearly what they get paid that we remove the perception of unfairness and people can clearly see what they would need to do to earn more money. Uh, so we talk a bit about that. Um, he now makes no decisions. So he was on a panel with David Marquet who wrote Turn the Ship Around. I've had David on the podcast. And following on from that, Henry took one of the things in the Happy Manifesto, which is his book, which he wrote a little while ago. One of his 10 principles in there is every project is pre-approved. So he took the concept of pre-approving a project to the level that David Mark Kay did in the San Antonio uh, when he was captaining that US nuclear submarine and decided that he would take no decisions. And so we talk about the implications of that and an example around pushing price up where some employees took ownership for raising prices and did that during the pandemic when probably Henry's instinctive reaction would have been to not have raised prices at that point. And he said, in fact, that saved the company. So a great story. And then lastly, we chat about what his exit plan is. Henry's now in his early 60s and he's thinking, I don't have no plans to retire, but how might I continue the work at Happy and continue this amazing organization of happy people? They are the second happiest company in the UK or best place to work as measured by 
uh, the Great Places to Work organization and number 15 in Europe. And they've been in the top 10 position for small businesses in these and other awards for a long, long time. And so what might he do? And I had Chris Bob on the podcast a little while ago talking about employee ownership trust. And so Henry and the team at Happy have embarked on selling the organization to employees. So we talk about talk a bit about that. So fantastic conversation. Henry's in Lanzarote. It's Friday. He does a four-day week. So he's on holiday today. So it was great that, uh, or he's not working today, should I say. And so it's great that uh, he was able to jump on and have a chat with us. Fantastic conversation. I'm sure you'll love it. Hi, I'm Henry Stewart. I'm founder and chief happiness officer at Happy. And what Happy does is we help organizations create happy workplaces. And do you do, do you still do any of the IT training stuff that you started doing or? We, we started as Happy Computers, uh, enabling people to enjoy and uh, their software. And yet we still do, that's still about a, a quarter of the business. And that's mainly about Excel. So if you want to learn about Excel, you know, come to Happy. And do you have an office? We do. We have a training center in Oldgate with six, uh, six rooms. We did wonder during the pandemic, uh, because obviously through the pandemic, it, we was, it was vacant for two years. Uh, completely empty and we did wonder during the pandemic whether we whether we would continue using it um, and we had a big debate we had looked at all the data and we reckoned that if it was even available one room a day then it would be worth worth doing and so we kept it so i'm intrigued because if anybody if any organization was happy to go fully remote and be work from anywhere and results only work environment it would be it would be the people that are happy so here you are and you've kept a physical space. Is that because you like it or because when you do the work that you do with clients that it's that they like it, that you think it's more impactful? What? That is a good point because even before the pandemic, I remember somebody coming to Happy and looking around the office and there were only four people there and we've got, we've got 25 people altogether and saying, where's everybody else? And I said, I've got no idea. I don't know where they are. And yes, that has absolutely been the point. But the key thing about um, what we deliver, we deliver learning and a lot of people still want it in the classroom at the moment. So obviously in the pandemic, it was 100% online, but now it's 50-50 classroom online. So people want to come back to the classroom. Do you think that's the, that gives some insight into working from home versus working in the office as employees? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we, uh, I, you know, don't, w- don't worry about where people work. And probably we've got about three or four people still in the, in the office at the moment. But it does mean, I mean, I suppose the point about classroom is that people, people get together, they meet, they engage, they discuss. And for a lot of people, they, they really like that. I mean, obviously, online is great if you're remote, if you're, uh, if you're across many countries or things like that. But... Often people like the classroom. I mean, there was an interesting uh, survey we did. We, we do a survey at the end of our course on, do you prefer online or the classroom? And when we were in the pandemic, 60%, because they're all online, 60% said, yeah, I definitely prefer online. But when we got back to people doing it in the classroom, 95% said they preferred the classroom. Is that 95% of total or 95% of people in the classroom? 95% of people in the classroom. Now, you might say, well, people will decide which they want, but um, there's certainly a lot of people that far prefer the classroom. Huh. Okay, that's cool. And see, but there's a sort of feels like there's a fundamental human truth in there. I mean, I've been talking to a number of people about it recently. And, you know, if you thought about finding a life partner and spending time with them, you know, you would probably say, well, if that was the case, we would want to be in the same house and spend time with each other regularly. Now, I know there are plenty of married people who think their marriage is better off when they spend no time with their other half, but I don't think that's the majority of people who are happily married. Uh, and so, you know, the whole working on a, with a team of people on important stuff, you know, doing useful work and feeling like you're making a sensible contribution or a meaningful contribution to society, doing that on your own versus doing that physically with people. Or if you're in a sports team, you know, they don't practice on a Tuesday and a Thursday on their own and then turn up and play on a Saturday. You know, they, they practice together. And so I do think there's a fundamental human truth about coming together to do great work. Now, if you work for an average company, then I can see why you wouldn't want to commute to do a dull job with you know, not very good, good colleagues. But, and so I think the average is always different from the top five, top 
of companies in the world. So, yes, but you're, you're suggesting that the top five, top 10% need to have everybody together in the office. And I, I'm not absolutely sure that's true. I mean, we've had one person, our marketing manager, who hasn't been in the office for three years, and she does a, a, a very fine job and managing to engage with other people. I think you can decide to do one or the other. I think the randomness of ending up with, so some of the clients that I work with or speak to during the pandemic, they went remote and so they have hired people in remote locations. And now that they're back in their offices, some of the time, they've got people that they wish they hadn't hired, not because they're not great people, but because these people now, if only they'd hired them within half an hour of the office, could actually get to the office. And last week I was talking to somebody and they'd hired a lady and she's resigned great employee, but she says, I'm so far away from any of your offices, I can't get to an office. And I really would like to be in an office with other human beings. So I've gone, I've got another job with somebody else because they've got an office around the corner. And so I think it's sort of, it, it's about what structure do you put in place to be, you know, one of the top 5% of companies in the world and being deliberate about what's going to work in terms of attracting and retaining? Well, we are we are in the top two best workplaces in the UK at the moment, the top 15 in Europe. And yeah, so I, I like to think we are in that top 5%. And we somehow it works. Somehow people are engaged, even though some of them are not in the office. And you've, but recently you've decided that even if you do come into the office, or you've, uh, well, four days a week, you've gone four days a week. And you've done it properly. So it's not 40 hours on four days. You've said it's just sort of eight hours a day, four days a week. Exactly. So the key point about the four-day week is you get 100% of your salary for 80% of your time as long as you are 100% as productive. And that's why, you know, that's why we had the pilots. We had 70 organisations in the UK on the pilot um, to see if you could be 100% as productive in four days. And I think virtually every one of those pilot companies are continuing it because they were 100% as productive. So who measures productivity? Well, that's a good question. We did do a survey of our staff and every one of them said they were 100% as productive in four days as five. But how do we measure productivity? The key measure for us is are we 100% as productive in terms of customer feedback and in terms of income? That's the key question. And we actually grew by 40% last year without any increase in staff. And we're expecting to grow another 10% this year. And that for me says, you know, that we are as productive as we were before because we're getting as much done in less time. And that is a win-win. It's a win for the employees because they obviously get the day off. And it's a win for, for employers because we get, get things to be much more productive. And so is it you're just testing Parkinson's law? You're just saying, right, you've just got to get the same amount of work done. Cut out spurious meetings. Don't chit-chat. Don't procrastinate. Don't say you're at work when you're actually walking the dog. Just when you say you're working, do some work. Absolutely. I mean, a key, key part of things that at Happy has been, meetings have been, have been cut back. Meetings have been cut back in, uh, there's either less meetings or meetings have been cut from an hour to 30 minutes or things like that. Um, also, yet you'd get your personal stuff done in your day off, not during work. And you get much more focused. I mean, the interesting thing was we, I've run a productivity blitz course for many years and nobody at Happy was particularly interested in it until we did the four-day week, right? Um, and when they did the four-day week, they all wanted to be on it. And as a result, people are really focused. Because to be honest, Tom, most people get lots of email alerts, they get lots of Slack alerts, lots of Teams alerts, and they don't actually get much done, right? So the key is to really be focused in your time Stop the email alerts, stop the teams, and instead really get deep work done. Because it's funny, because I, I think often when people talk about working from home and where the productivity benefit comes from, it's at home, I'm not disturbed. And, and I just think that that's actually a failure of office design. If there's nowhere at your office that you can go and do work, deep work, then you haven't designed the office correctly. You've made it so that nobody's got quiet space that they can go and work in. So I can completely understand why they'd say, well, in that case, I'm going to do it from home. What, what are the, some of the other things in the Productivity Blitz course? Okay, I can tell you all there's There's Pomodoros. You know, you know Pomodoros, I'm sure, which is 25 minutes of absolute focus and then taking a five-minute break. There is Eat for Frogs, which is well, basically, uh, instead of a to-do list, you write down at the end of the day the four most important tasks you have to do the next day. 
It's based on our Charles Schwab story of he was head of Bethlehem Steel and he met, I think it was Ivy Lee, who was the US's foremost productivity expert. And he said to Ivy, what can you teach me about productivity? And Ivy said, well, introduce me to your directors and I'll check that out. And the key point was that Charles Schwab sent Ivy Lee a check for $25,000 three months later, which is like $500,000 nowadays and isn't bad for a day's work, is it? So what Ivy told the directors was simply at the end of each day, write down the six most important tasks you've got to do the next day, put them in order, and then do them. I, I talk, for me, is four tasks, and so I talk about eat four frogs, which are the things often you don't want to do. The other tip from a guy called Bruce Daisley, I think you've had Bruce Daisley on, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I've had Bruce on, yeah, yeah. Joy at work. Yeah, joy at work. Um, he, he's got the monk mode morning, which is the idea that at least two or three days a week, you have no meetings and no email before 11. And then you just get stuff done. And the other key tip for email overload, yeah, you, you probably don't have email overload, do you, Don? Do you? <laughs> I get a lot of email, but mostly it's uh, not from human beings. Mostly it's newsletters and things like that. Okay, so I used to have terrible email overload. I would have read the stuff in my inbox, but I wouldn't, wasn't quite sure whether I needed to get to do it or have it. And then I read an article in Forbes called 3210. So what I now do and what I encourage everybody at Happy and everybody in our, in, on the product of your bits to do is I check my email three times a day, right? Cut off the alerts, check my email three times a day, take 21 minutes and reduce it to zero. And every day... I have a zero inbox. And there's such a weight of relief off my head. And, and I, somebody I was talking to this week who's on our level seven friendship, which I like to, to term the happy MBA, said that he too, you know, as a result of productivity blitz, he has managed to get his email to zero every day. And it is such a relief off his mind. And so what do you do? You're, I think you've told me about this. You, you say, delete it, delegate it, or do it. Are they the things you can do with your email? Absolutely. Those are the main things you do. Sometimes your email is a task, like write a business plan or, or do this project. And that then goes into tasks and you set some time for that. But everything else, you exactly, you do that. You delete it, do it or delegate it. Yeah, I was, I, I've got a client, Time Etc., that do virtual assistants. And the number one thing that these virtual assistants do for entrepreneurs is manage their email for about two hours a day so that when they log in in the evening, because they've been busy all day, that there are, what's left is the five things they need to do. And that all of that other stuff has been done by somebody else. Ah, that's very clever. Very clever. So 3210 is now my, the blog that's got the most visits on our website and is even ahead of that Forbes article. Aha. Uh -huh. I'd, I'd like to go back to the four-day week because Happy was part of the, do you say 70 companies did a trial? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So reasonable size. Did you, have you got some insight into how, how some of those other companies looked at productivity? Yeah, I mean, I think every single one of them has achieved the same level of productivity in four days as five days. None of them, as far as I'm aware, have gone back to the five-day week. And some, one gained 45% productivity. And see, I'll have to go and dig out their data because one of the things that occurs to me as you say that to me, and it's not to be cynical, it's only to be questioning, right? So... Because, you know, during the during COVID, lots of people put out research, which was our staff report being more productive. And I'm like, well, of course they do. Absolutely. And then Microsoft put out some data that said, actually, what happened is, is people are working two hours a day longer. And it's like, actually, they're, so <laughs> what they're doing is they're thinking, I'm getting more done. Good. But actually, they're getting much less productive because actually they're working two hours a day longer than they were before. And so actually, productivity has gone down. And so, I'm, I mean, in this case, people are working shorter hours, not longer hours. But, uh, you know, unless organizations and Gallup did some did a study a few years ago where they said to people, uh, if we were to, you know, decide on quartiles across our business by performance and we were looking at productivity, uh, are you an A, a B, a C or a D? And what in Gallup survey where these organizations had no daily or weekly or monthly measure of productivity that the company provided its employees, what they found was all of the C and D players thought they were above average. And so the research that I can see suggests that people are, I don't think they're doing it deliberately, but they are self-delusional about their level of performance relative to their colleagues. And so sort of that survey stuff, I'm always nervous about. Whereas, you know, if you take the Gallup Q12, 
you know, num- the question one is, I know what's expected of me every day, you know, and to me in, in that is people have some sort of KPIs or scorecards in place so that every day it gets to five o'clock and they go, what's my score? Did I, what were the expectations of my business X? Was I supposed to do a certain number of things? Did I get those things done? Do I have a sense of satisfaction that I have achieved what I'm getting paid to do? And in most organizations, that just doesn't exist. People turn up, get busy, do a day. I mean, we did some work with one client when we were working through this with a client. And one guy said, I spend about 60% of my time doing email. Is that my high value activity? And it's like, not really. But that's what he spent most of his time doing. Well, that's one of the key, that's one of the key things about doing a four-day week. You manage to solve those kind of issues because people want to be more productive. I mean, that, that, that's the key point, of course. Everybody, we involved everybody in, you know, we did a survey at the beginning of it and 16 to 1 said they wanted to do it. I wasn't quite sure who the one was, but never mind. And they really, and so people really want to be involved. They really want to make sure they are as productive as before. And one of the interesting things that in the survey that we did was that 77% are literally working working just the 32 hours and only and the other 23 percent are working one or two hours over and beforehand they say that actually I used to work over hours so now so so actually that point about Microsoft that isn't happening at Happy people are actually working within their hours and getting getting the stuff done look I think it's fantastic do you think anybody struggles do you think there are people who maybe because you've got a small tight team you know the the people who when you move to a four-day week, those people who just can't organize themselves, right? They, they, they're going to struggle. I mean, do you have anybody like that who's found it a challenge? Or that, That's a potential issue is, are people more stressed in four days uh, than they were in five? That could be an issue. But again, in the survey, we found that that isn't an issue. People's well-being has improved. People are basically better. The, one, of, one of the key points of the four-day week is an article in The Economist many years ago which found that in the UK, people are only really focused two and a half hours a day, right? In Canada, it's only one and a half hours. Which is why UK productivity has languished so poorly then for so long. Absolutely. And so why I say why I created the four-day... Well, part of what, what one of the reasons was we like to be at the forefront of well-being at Happy. Somebody marked in a survey we did that they thought we were that people had caught up. We weren't, uh, we weren't at the forefront of well-being because people had caught up with us. So I thought, what can we do next? And that's one of the reasons that the four-day week came about. Let me channel my inner Kevin, who's one of our clients, who's a CFO. And, and he'll, he'll be listening to this chuckling as he listens to me channel Kevin, which is, well, why don't your people just work that hard for five days a week and get a 20% improvement in productivity? Um, well, that's, that, that is the question. But it, for all the 70 pilot organizations, that just didn't happen. Um, and maybe that's because people find better well-being when they when they only work four days, when they actually can do create more value, create more productivity. You know, you know, you know, you know don't you, Don? That if you work eighty hours, it's not effective, is it? And so the question is, where you where do you come down to? Forty hours is that effective? Probably not. If you're thirty-two hours, maybe we even can get back to twenty-four hours or something. We even get back to John Maynard Keynes's idea of fifteen hours a week that he proposed would be the idea in 2020. So much of the way we think about work is driven by the industrial revolution, you know, and that productivity is a bell curve as opposed to a power law. And so, you know, the best person might be two standard deviations of the mean. You know, you might be twice as good as me if you're in the top 5% and I'm only average. But when we do cognitive work, there's a great study by McKinsey looking at executives um, And it says, if people are in flow, you know, this taking that, you know, monk morning or that dedicated two and a half hours. And if you could be in flow, then those executives said that they were 500% more productive, 5x more productive than their colleagues. And so if you could be, you know, you only need to be a bit more productive to make four hours work. And so if that well-being is carrying over in terms of energy and, you know, people are taking your ideas from your blitz productivity thing, then I can, I can absolutely see how, you know, you could go from four days to three days and it's just Parkinson's law. If you've got five days to do it, you just do it a bit slower. Absolutely. It is exactly Parkinson's law. Every job fills the time you allocated to it. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So look, one of the other things, we, the reason that we ended up getting you back on the podcast is because you, you published an article saying that your staff were setting your salary and you started to get hate mail, I could see, from other CEOs who said that you were insane that you'd asked your staff to set your salary. So what's the premise of getting your team to set your salary? The, the idea is that it's our staff that know best how valuable I am. It's the, my staff that, that, uh, that know that. They, they're clear, they're aware. The board doesn't know it. The um, the shareholders don't know it. It's the staff that actually know what my salary should be worth. And so I, I agree. I, two years ago, I decided to let staff set my salary. And oddly, Tom, it's not, um, it's not gone viral. I mean, it's, the idea of setting the salary isn't gone viral. The, the, the blog went viral. Oddly, nobody else seems to want to do it. And have they paid you more? Yes. They have. They actually paid me above what I, I... I put in a band that I was expecting and they actually paid me more, which makes me feel really valued. Now, it may not work for everybody. <laughs> not every CEO might, might get that, but it works for me. It's interesting because it, it sort of touches on the whole conversation I have so often about salary transparency. And, you know, you start off by saying, well, by default, are we going to share everything? Uh, okay, well, yes. You know, people around the table nod and say, yeah, we'll share, we'll share everything. We'll be very transparent. And then I say, and salaries, which to me is included in everything. But that wasn't what people meant when they said everything. They meant everything except salaries. They meant sort of probably the financial information, but not salaries. And then it's like, okay, well, why would we not share salaries? And they're like, mm. and what's at the heart of that is that they know that it's unfair. There are some people in their organization that are paid more than others. And if everybody knew some people would believe some people are paid more than they're worth and some people are paid less than they're worth. Okay, so we've had transparent salaries for 30 years since we first, since we first read Maverick by Ricardo Semler. And we do a survey on it every year and it's always at least 85% say they like having the salaries transparent. And it's not just transparent, we have a spreadsheet which shows every salary FD has earned um, right back to when they started, plus the three reasons why they got that salary increase. And why wouldn't you want people to know uh, why people get a salary increase? You know, why? You, know, you, you don't want people to say, oh, it's because you went down the pub with, with Fred, you know, or whatever. You, know, you want them to know what it is that creates an increased salary in your organization. Yeah, and it, it's interesting. The first podcast I ever did, and I was, I was looking at it yesterday because I had a client with us, and Evgeny at Makers Academy, they... Um, staff set their own salaries. And so what they've got in place, so you have to have salary transparency to set your own salaries, but then they have a, they have a mechanism where people say, I think I'm worth more than I'm being paid. You have to have it peer reviewed. And if you go through, if you write, if you write the justification and you get it peer reviewed, then you take it to finance and finance pay you more money. And I said, do you have any people being underpaid? And he said, yeah, I've got some people who, who can't be bothered to go through the process of filling in the documentation. And so I know they're being underpaid, but I can't do anything about it because the process is no longer that I set salaries. Well, we don't do that. But what we do have is a democratically elected salary panel. So everybody elects, elects the, the salary panel. And then we have a pool. How, how much, what increase um, there should be in this year's salaries. And at every debate, it discusses it, looks at last year's profit, looks at the potential profit for next year and work out what that pool should be. Then they, each of them puts in their proposal for how much they should earn and the salary panel debates that and looks at that. But the uh, key point there is that the pool is decided by the staff. Okay. And so, because you're a, you're a small enough team, because I know when I've talked talk to the guys at WL Gore, the team get a, an amount of money that then they have to allocate. So you've got individuals are doing uh, proposing their increase and then the team or your salary panel are then normalizing that across the organization. Yeah, absolutely. But it, as I say, the, everybody gets together to decide what the total pool is. And, I, you know, some people might say, oh, wouldn't they decide 100 grand or 200 grand or huge, some huge amount? Um, but no, people actually look at the, look at the finances, look at what's, what's reasonable and come up with uh, a proposal. Do your team get a profit share bonus as well? Yeah, they get 20%. So they're looking at the company as a... You know, here's a business that, and so you're teaching them the fundamentals of how the business works, right? You can't get a two hundred thousand pound pay rise if there's no money in the bank, right? Exactly, and that's crucial. How any business should work is so we have a little Lego game which helps people understand the profit and and the sales and and so forth. I did uh, worked with a client 
a little while ago, and he decided that what they would do is start at the executive team level. So he got his executive team together, and they had no salary transparency at this point. And he said, okay, write down what you think your colleagues get paid and send me in the spreadsheet. So that was a, what do we think everybody's worth? What do you, you know, it's a bit like you're getting your team to set your salary. So without any, uh, the only thing they had was there's a total amount for the team so that everybody had to balance it back to a total figure as opposed to random numbers. And he said, what that showed up was it, before they went to some transparency, it showed up where the big discrepancies were because only he, only, only he knew what people were being paid. And so he said that was a good place to start because, you know, if the executive team can't agree to be transparent, then you're not going to be able to get it anywhere in the organization. And in so many companies, you know, one of the clients we work with, Pax8, they've got seven bands, I think, for their BDRs and, and nine bands for eight bands for their CAMs. And so you can see what band people are at and you can see what, they, what the salary band would be and you know what you have to do to get promoted. And so even if you don't have down to the pound shillings and pence, you've got within a few quid, you can, you know, in a large organization, you can have a scalable system that people say, I, I am here. I know who else is on the same level as me. And I know what I need to do if I want to get more money. What's interesting about salary transparency is that fairness point, is that actually some people sometimes say so-and-so should be earning more or so-and-so should be. And the salary plan has to reflect that. So I remember doing this on a BBC radio show and the director of that show said, that she had just discovered that somebody on a similar show was earning 10 grand more than her. And when she asked why, and, and when she asked why they got that, the director said, because they asked for it. And she had asked for it. <laughs> One of the other things, again, scaling it with organizations is deciding where you want to be. You know, Netflix has said to say, well, we're going to pay 125% of market. But, but in large organizations, you need some mechanism that says, and we had this thing, we had it at Pier 1, we said, we're going to pay, we're going to pay mid-market and we're going to we're going to set a salary level for New York and London tier 1 and then we're going to say we're going to pay you less in a tier 2 city and a less in a tier 3 city because we had 22 locations and we're constantly going to measure market and if anybody feels like they're being paid less than median tell us and we'll go and do a bit of work and we'll make sure that we we get updated because there might be some particular local pressure and software developers in Southampton that we we are our pay bands aren't taking account of and we found loads of people across the organization who are being underpaid. We found some people who are being overpaid as well. But, you know, it cost us $250,000 to normalize those people who were paid less than market, given that that was our goal. Well, we don't have any of that. In the past, we were probably under the market level. But now we're hoping to get well beyond the market level. And because, you know, based on, you know, our current profits and so on and our profit-related pay and all that kind of thing. So we're hoping to go way beyond it. By the way, we don't, and I know you'll, you'll approve of this, we don't have individual bonuses. We only have collective bonuses. Indeed, because it's a team. I think team scores and team bonuses are, are the right way to do it. And profit share as well. Do you pay it out at the end of the year or do you split it up across the quarters? We generally pay it at the end of the year. Though we, we normally do about £1,000 three months before, maybe a bit more after, after that. Yeah, but it's, we, did have a, we did have a point some years ago where we paid it out in a quarter and then we made a loss that year. So we did move it to annual. Yeah, because in great game of business, they say, okay, do... 10, 20, 30, 40 each quarter. Because as you roll into the next year, you probably already know what the quarter, next quarter is. So only do 10. But then, then if you miss a quarter, you can catch up at the year end, if that makes sense. So uh, it keeps people interested. Oh, there is, there is a point about it being a genuine bonus. So actually at the end of the year, you get this huge, this, well, what at the moment is quite a big amount at, at Happy. So that it doesn't get reflected in your salary. I'm, and I think it's, you know, look again, with Great Game of Business, these things are linked to teaching the employees the how the finances of the business works. Because again, when they survey the man on the street, he thinks that typically limited companies make 30% net profit. And it's like, if only, you know, as opposed to the five that is typical. So look, another thing you've decided to do is as well as setting your salary, having your team set your salary and pay you more money, and maybe this is reflective in why they now pay you more money, you've also taken the decision to make no decisions. So what do, what do you do? <laughs> I create the framework. I create the, you know, so one of the big things I, I promoted this year in my salary increase was the four-day week. Ah, oh, now I can see why you got a pay rise. Give me a pay rise for the four-day week. Everyone, okay, we're in with you, Henry. 
Okay, so I, I, I was on a, a panel with David Marquette. I, have, you, have you had David Marquette on your podcast? I've had him on, yeah. I intend to. Yeah, turn the ship around. Brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. So he was the commander of a US Navy submarine, and he didn't know how he worked because he'd been trained for another submarine. And so he decided instead of him dictating to 125 crewmen, uh, he would have the crewmen decide how to do things and he would coach them. The one thing he, he would, uh, would be his decision would be firing the missiles. But apart from that, everything else would be decided by the staff. So I decided it was actually when our managing director of IT business moved on was I decided to stop making decisions. And it was brilliant. As a result of it, we were flatlining at the time. And as a result of it, we grew by 25% a year in the next couple of years. And we were going to be growing by 25% in the pandemic, but, you know, that's, we lost 95% of our business at that point, but there we go. And what, really, what happened was people took real accountability and real responsibility. And, you know, I wrote the Happy Manifesto 10 years ago, and I thought we had a trust-based environment at Happy. But when I started to stop making decisions, I realized we didn't. You know, people were still relying on my decision. They were still thinking, what would Henry think? And since I've stopped making that, those decisions, they've started taking their own responsibility and doing some great stuff. You know, in your Happy Manifesto, one of your, one of your principles is all projects are pre-approved. So this is just extending projects to everything. So let me give you an example. You know, Ben and John were looking at the pricing and thinking the pricing, it doesn't really reflect today's market. So it wasn't particularly their responsibility, but they decided to take it on as their responsibility. And so they did something called the advice process, which is basically they, they talked to lots of people. They looked at the market. They looked at competitors. They talked to me. They proposed a price increase, which I wasn't that keen on, but they said they went ahead with it because uh, it wasn't my decision. And what I reckon now is that they were far more effective in deciding that price rise than I would ever have been. Because I was, I was based on kind of 20, 30 years ago, what prices were then. They are based on what, what, what it's like now. They know the clients. They know what's going on. And so that price rise probably enabled us to continue through the pandemic. I think that's fascinating because the price rise is all, the stopping you putting the price up is almost always in your head. And, you know, you're thinking, well, you know, Every, you know, what's still on your shoulders is I'm the CEO. This is my business. I, all these people's paying them a salary, keeping the roof above their heads is on me. And if I put the price up and it goes wrong, then, you know, some of them are going to lose the, and it's just, there's a lot of, a lot riding on you. And so people become risk averse. Absolutely. So I stepped away from that and Ben and John took the responsibility. And I often, I often read, I often think about your pricing, Don, because I think, you started out at a certain amount, let's say, and then you increased it but with, with every project, I believe, and you eventually got to four times that amount, 10 times. <laughs> ten, 10 times where we were and keep trying to eat my own dog food around that and keep pushing it up. I'm actually doing a course at the moment, Harvard Business Course, around, around pricing and strategy. Because I just think the idea is that your price that, or the price that somebody's prepared to pay is, the, is your willingness to pay. And, and lots of things impact that willingness to pay. But in the way that they, uh, they think about it is there's also a willingness to sell. And your suppliers have a willingness to sell to you. And your employees have a willingness to sell to you. And these things are a continuum. So it's called a strategy stick is the way the tool is described. And if you think about it in a restaurant, if you wanted to charge a premium price in a restaurant, then you probably have to have better food, better service. And therefore, you're, you want great staff. You probably want low staff turnover. And you probably want staff who are in flow when they're serving customers. And so you can now see in the restaurant thing that employees and customers and willingness to pay are intrinsically linked and not separate things. And so it's just uh, working through that model. And you can think about willingness to pay on different factors. So if you, I don't know, if you take bottled water versus tap water, somebody might be prepared to pay a number of cents a litre for bottled water. Somebody might be prepared to pay more for a glass bottle than a plastic bottle. 
And so then these things are additive and it starts to segment the marketplace. And so thinking about the work that I do, who's your core customer? What are the willingness to pay drivers that you have? And then how you might adjust value to be able to raise your price for particular groups of customers. And so it's just it's just a fascinating model, not thinking about it necessarily from how do I get more price, but how do I create more value? And then what might be a fair way to charge for that for some customers? Because some people won't value what you do and some will value it more. Absolutely. I'd say we deliver fantastic value to our, to our clients. We help them create happy, productive workplaces that are far more effective than they were before. And so we, you know, we, we need to be paid for that. Do you have any sense of ROI or what metrics when people come in and go, look, Henry, you know, you're number two best place to work. And oh, by the way, is that Sunday Times best companies or is it? Great place to work. Great place to work. So your second small business, number two small business, great place to work. Second small business in, in UK and 15th of Europe. Okay. So they come to you and they say, Henry, you, you've been doing this. I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, which is how we met years and years and years ago. You know, you've been doing this for a long time. What will the impact on my business be when somebody says that to you? Where do you think the levers are that somebody should think that, you know, making this a great place to work? What are the impacts? Because people aren't doing it for the fun of it. They're doing it because they think there's a potential economic impact. Well, some of them are, are as interested in the well-being of their staff as they are in the economic impact, but a lot of them are very focused on the economic impact. There's some examples we've got. You'll, you'll remember Luke Clifton from Macquarie? Yeah, 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 totally. He at one point said that creating a happy workplace was what led them to have a threefold increase in their share price. And in fact, it's now a tenfold increase in their share price. Um, so that's, you know, we, we both went out there, you know, to, to Sydney. Another example is Sarah Pugh from Heart of Kent Hospice who went from 350 clients to 900 clients without any increase in staff based on putting in place the ideas of the, of the happy workplace. It's often, you know, varied. We like Luke Clifton will, there'll be a lot of other things that he did as well as creating a happy workplace. But that's what he said. That's what he said when we gave a presentation. And now you're thinking of maybe this isn't your exit plan. Maybe this is just a continuation of getting paid more and making fewer decisions. But you are you're contemplating selling the organization, selling your company to its employees. Is that your exit strategy? I'm, I don't think I'll be exiting at that point. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm only 63. I've got a lot of time left. I'd love working for Happy. And I love the fact I don't need to make any decisions. Everyone else does that. Because, you know, I don't micromanage. I'm, I'm not stressed at night. None of that stuff. So the employment and jobs trust is a, is a fantastic idea. Because I've had various people come to me, you know, uh, and say, we want to invest in your business. We want to take over your business. But none of them have the right values. So the point of the Employee Ownership Trust is, of course, it will keep the values because it keeps the staff. And it has probably as, as big a sale point as any outside investor because you set the evaluation for the organization. Or in our case, it's based on three times last year's profits, two times the year before and one times the year before that, um, which is why it's in two years' time because pandemic results weren't great. And so we will sell. Um, I've got various shareholders, but we will we will sell the company. And we've also got share options for staff. So when when we put in place the idea for the Employee Ownership Trust, we also put in place share options for staff so that they will also benefit from the results of this. And that, so we'll sell it to the Employee Ownership Trust, which is like the John Lewis model, and then the staff will own it. And one of the great things about that is the profit-related pay bonus is tax-free up to £3,500. Very good. Once you've, once you've become an employee ownership trust. Once you've become an employee ownership trust, yeah. And also there's a, in terms of tax benefit as an exit strategy, it's tax efficient for you as well, isn't it? <laughs> it is absolutely, yes. Although you probably get less for it. I mean, it's interesting. One of our other clients, uh, we work with a, an organization called Valaris, which is sort of a sub of a company called Constellation. They buy niche software businesses and then never integrate them and never sell them. And the reason you'd sell to them, I don't think they're necessarily the biggest payers, but very often these businesses have been run by a CEO for a long period of time. And the CEO feels a sense of loyalty and attachment to their team. And so they know if they sell it to a trade buyer or PE backed buyer, you know, their customers will get consumed, but their team will disappear. And 85% of those businesses, the CEO 
who was acquired or the, or the number two on acquiring is still running the company. And so, you know, it's that it's that sort of values based protective environment in which they grow these businesses. So, you know, they're not in the UK where they're all over the, the companies that I'm working with are sort of Vancouver through to New Zealand. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a similar mindset from a CEO exiting going, I don't need the maximum amount of money for me. What's the right thing to do with these people who've, who I've worked with for years? Absolutely. Would I want, you know, as I go into retirement, those values to that happy embeds to disappear? No, absolutely not. I mean, I've one of our shareholders has sold his company, a legal recruitment company, to a, a competitor. I, there were 200 people in that company. And within two years, there were just four of them left. You know, I wouldn't want that to happen. And not the appetite to do a management buyout by your leadership team? I don't think so, no. I don't think so. I don't think they've got those kind of resources, to be honest with you. Um, Maybe they will in the future as we increase the salary pool and get more profit. But no, at the moment, it's we're going for the Employee Ownership Trust. Okay. And so you've caught up with your well-being stuff four days a week. What else do you see on the edge of welfare? What are people doing that you haven't done yet that you admire? Because you spend a lot of time talking to people who are constantly trying to think of new things to drive employee engagement and ways of working. Absolutely. And we try and respond to it. And, you know, like you always used to do, Dom, you always, you, you found a, found an idea and you would instantly put it into place. Um, I mean, my, my next book is Creating Joy at Work, 501 Ideas for Creating a Happy Workplace. And uh, there's, a, there's a few of, a lot of those that we have actually taken on board but the key to creating a happy workplace for me is is getting people to do what they're good at you know i'm sure you'd agree with that um giving them the trust and freedom to make their own decisions and having managers who coach not tell people what to do and i think at happy we really have put that into place and we are the best place we've ever been at happy you know i really think that it is a great place to work and it's just fabulous Fabulous place to be. And you've got a business with purpose, making other people's workplaces happy, happier. And I, I you know, I just, so many people, you, know, you just have to look at sort of Gallup's in global engagement survey. And the, it seems that the vast majority of people go to work and derive no joy from 40 hours a week. And and you know what? When that uh, blog went viral about statues my salary, I understood why, because Normally, in my LinkedIn blog, it goes out only to the people I know and like, and they, they think, oh, yeah, that's great, that's lovely. But this blog, uh, LinkedIn put it out to two million people. And suddenly, you've got all these people who I was not aware of. You know, somebody at, at Happy said, they're a bit grumpy, aren't they? Um, and suddenly, you've got people saying, staff is staff, management is management. And if people, if, if people aren't happy, they should leave. You know, well... I want people to be happy so that they will stay, Dom. <laughs> but suddenly you had all these people who clearly have a very different view of business to the one that I do. And yes, you know, that's why people, why there's a lot of people out there that don't have joy at work. And so the idea of having to get up and get dressed and go to spend another invisible day in the office, I can absolutely see why those people are going, if this is just a job, why would I do the commute? There's uh, Nick Marks at, at Friday Pulse, uh, spoke at one of our client events a couple of years ago, and he had some fantastic data from Japan. So it was female employees in Japan, and it was a list of all the tasks they do at home and at work in their week. And bottom of the list was commute, and second bottom of the list was work. And so it was just like, these are the two things that they get they derive the least joy from, work and commuting, one being slightly less than the other. Well, well, let me tell you, at Happy, uh, my colleague Kathy, who you'll know, decided that she wanted to give to work out how much joy people have in their work, right? And we, we reckon we should get it to 80%. So initially, um, it was 73%, but now we've got to 87%. 87% people, they find joy in their work. Isn't that fabulous? It's fab. It's, it, it's then assuming that you've met Maslow's hierarchy of needs and you're getting paid enough. It's just, you know, why would you not want to do that? Absolutely. So we've got, we've got uh, 87% joy at work. We've got a decent salaries now. We've got a four-day week. I mean, I tell you, we haven't, we haven't lost anybody recently. Well, and, and it's interesting because that willingness to pay or willingness to sell about employees, when somebody says to me, we just really can't attract the right staff, Dom. It's like, okay, 
you need to think harder about what your proposition is to be to be attracting people and salary always ends up being i don't know five or six or seven on the list and there's loads of other things and particularly around retention and and then when people say well when we've done the exit interviews it wasn't this this and this it's like yeah that's because people lie because you know they just it's like when you know you're you're in a restaurant and you've just eaten this meal and you've just said to your wife we're never coming here again and the waiter comes over and says everything okay you go yes it's fine thank you it's delicious and then you leave and then you never go back. People lie all the time because they don't want to have difficult conversations. Um, Henry, what books have you been reading that people should dip into? Or maybe you go back and you've got some in the archive that you you think people should read around this whole topic of that we've been talking about today. Okay. My three favorites are Maverick by Ricardo Semler. That absolutely transformed happy way back uh, 40 years, no, 30 years ago. Um, uh Multipliers by Liz Wiseman, um, which ex- which explains how you create a multiplier rather than a diminisher in your in your managers. And and also what I love is that she says that seventy percent of people are diminishing, but not on purpose. Absolutely. And yes. so when you read when you read the book, it, you go, oh yes, I can see that I'm being a diminisher, and I agree with her. I'm not doing it on purpose. And so there is, you know, you're not being told you're doing it wrong, and it's deliberate. And that had a real effect on her because a lot of people were diminishing by accident. And we we now would say to people, you know, am I diminishing or am I multiplying? You know. And the other one is Frederick Lelou's uh, reinventing organisations, which has a had a major effect on on happy that's about self-managing organizations um and that's where where we are at the moment fantastic henry as ever lovely to talk to you i hope you enjoy your weekend in lanzarote yeah <laughs> and it's great that you were able to come on on friday because you're not working today <laughs> absolutely yes thanks very much for coming on yeah, I did wonder whether to, whether to do it on the Friday or whether because oh, that isn't my work day. But there we go. I went for it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, lovely to talk to you, and I'll see you soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.